I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com A Living History Production I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Vane. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, do you like a chatter? I do. Do you like a natter? I do. Well, you'll like chatter natter with Andy Tong, our guest for today. Hello, Andy. Hello, Peter. Hello, Gary. Hi, Andy. You all right? Yeah. He's very well behaved. He is not like that Carol Oak. Sorry? Always well behaved. Always, always, always. It's uh, like a... Now, we're here... uh, to uh, to do a chat and with you on the subject of your military collection, uh, you have uh, a, quite a reasonable sized military collection uh, compared to mine. <laughs> Say all the girls. Hey, and uh, firstly, Gary wants to ask you a question about about something. What do you want to ask, Gary? Well, I'd like to know, Andy, what sort of got you into the collection? Uh, you've got an interest in in uh, uh, the Great War, and uh, I've seen you on a number of battlefield tours, for example, but why collecting? Oh, that's, that's, that's quite simple. It started when I was uh, in my early teens and finding at home my father's cap badge from World War Two. He'd been invited to join the army in 1939, the sort of invitation that one doesn't say, mm, can we put it off for a few months? And he ended up going to India, moved overland from India to the Western Desert, arriving at... Uh, just about the end of May 1942. And with his battalion, he went to um, a little place called Bir al-Harmat, just on the edge of the cauldron. And we all know what happened on the cauldron, don't we, Gary? Yes, it's in Peter's book, At Close Range. It's as if it was scripted. So his battalion was guarding the gap in the minefields where 15th Panzer Division came, and basically they took about 75% casualties. He ended up in in an Italian hospital... And then moved, got moved to Germany where he spent the rest of the war digging coal for the Germans, based out of um, Lambsdorff in Silesia. That's quite a war record. I wish we'd interviewed him. Oh, he, 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 he did one of the POW death marches and ended up at Regensburg. Or I think it was actually Moosburg in Austria. Uh, but he never talked about it much as very few of them did. Except to us. The War Museum. <laughs> that was compulsory. Um, so that, so that's, that's, what, that's what kicked me off. And, and is that what kicked you off in your interest in military history or, or in collecting, or is it both? Probably, they, probably they, both. Probably both. Um, I started very much as a collector, collecting badges, 
saving badges. And was it Second World War, like your dad's? Initially. And then a, a, a friend persuaded me that uh, I should go on the battlefield tour that he was um, acting as courier on. So he went to the Somme. Next year went to Ypres. Then the next year did a couple more places, including Verdun. And it sort of built built from there. And how old were you when, when this started? You know, when you started actually collecting properly, how when you started going to battlefield tours properly? Started collecting properly late late teens. Started getting the wider interest, the the backstories for beyond the actual physical artifact when I was in my early twenties and we just run through from there. Most teenagers don't have a lot of disposable income, Andy. So how did you sort of afford some of these things? Or were they very much cheaper in those oh, days? Oh, very much, very much cheaper in those days. Uh, and uh, what I was collecting was, was mainly the, the cat badges, which could be, when I started, they were 50 pence apiece. You know, now, some of those basic badges are still only six or seven pounds. So there's the, the, the end of the market that's very accessible for people without going to the esoteric things that really are rocking horse shit. Um, and there's things that, 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 that give interest um, that are not necessarily expensive. Did you ever move into postcards? Military postcards, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've got quite a lot of it because one of the, the, the interesting things that goes with owning some of the artefacts is if you can find pictures of the lads actually wearing it or using it, it actually... Can, it takes you from just being hoarding to, to to actually collecting and understanding and starting to want to develop the history and the, the, the full picture. So you started with, with badges. Um, I mean, I remember, you, I think you may even have known him. You certainly know his book. Chris McCarthy said he used to collect badges and he used to go on and on about it. And then he went to work at the War Museum. And they, they took him and showed him the War Museum's collection of badges and gave up. <laughs> What's the bloody point? <laughs> um, but th- there is, is there, do, do, are you one of the collectors who needs to have every badge, every variant of every badge? In other words, obsessive. Or, or are you just someone who wants some nice examples of most of the badges? Right, so I've got some main themes. I've got a theme for the county of Cornwall, which is where I was brought up, and that was the, that was the regiment. I'll be able to do the accents for you. You you certainly can, me handsome. Proper proper job, me handsome. That's that's those are the key words. You master those, you're okay. Proper job, me handsome. That's your pirate. That, no, he's he's he's, he's pretty good. He's a lot of people oh, do speak like that. that no, he's good. That's also his Cockney and he's Australian. Well, don't tell him that. Oh, hang on, that was my Norwich. <laughs> Sorry, carry on, Andy. Uh, I've been. Yeah, we don't want to be thrown off track by an idiot. So there's a few themes where, yes, it'd be nice to have some of the, to explore the corners of what was possible. Now, that goes back to really the end of the the 18th century. Those are the earliest bits that are they're really achievable in finding. So you broadened out from badges to Cornish militaria. Yeah, so the, the uniforms, the, uh, the headdress, the equipment, uh, and then a lot of the stuff that goes within paperwork and ephemera. So that would be more fair to say that's edging in towards obsessional with yeah, that field. With that field. But then it, it, other interests are is having some nice examples of something rather than necessarily having everything. Uh, uh, there are a community of collectors who who look at different examples of the same cat badge. 
I've got 20 different variants of this. Yeah, so what? But it excites them and it obviously floats their boat and uh, I shouldn't really criticise them for for that, but it's not what I want to do. Well, I mean, I collect postcards. That's why I asked about the postcards, for example. I started uh, probably 10 years ago now and what I like, I actually like the ones that got something written on them, you know, rather than the blank ones. because you you can get a little bit of the backstory. And one of the early ones I got was addressed to uh, somewhere in Hendon, which was the site of where my wife worked. Um, and, and I just liked the idea that I could connect to that postcard. It wasn't the best postcard, it was just interesting. So, so Gary, tell you a little story. Years ago, I went to an auction in, in Lewis, and the auctioneer kicked everyone out at lunchtime, so you're just wandering around the town and went into... The town hall with this little postcard fair, one two Cornwall postcards, and bought these. These here because they looked interesting. Not particularly, they weren't military. Then you looked at the back of this postcard. It was addressed to a Master Jocelyn Ratcliffe. The postcard had been posted in 1906. Now, as a teenager, I used to go beating for the local pheasant shoot. He was one. That gentleman was one of the syndicate. So I picked up cards that had been sent to him what, 50, 60, 70 years before? And then you've got a person. And then I had actually known this same person in later life. Yeah, very interesting. Now, you must have broadened your themes because a lot of the things we're going to look at don't have a link to Cornwall. So so what are your... You said you've got more than one theme. What are your other themes, would you reckon? <sighs> I'm interested in the First World War. I'm interested in the ground of the First World War, the people that fought, and how it panned out and how it spread its tentacles a little bit wider. Uh, so it'd be very easy to, to think that collecting is all about shiny things. But sometimes it's, it's the non-shiny things that tell far, far greater stories. Well, I know you've got a, a great example of that in a, in a cookbook, which sounds ridiculous, but we're, we're, we'll be coming to that later. So I understand entirely that what you mean by that. Uh, any other themes of Great War? Great War. Cornwall, anything else? Or is it just sometimes you see something that floats your uh, boat? Yeah, sometimes, some, sometimes you, you see something that's, that's, that's got history. In, it's something that isn't necessarily run-of-the-mill. Um, and if you're in a position where you do the research that goes with all of these things, it gives you the knowledge to, to pick up something that could actually be nondescript and something that's actually got historical importance. Now, you mentioned research. Do you, do you, so, and this is it, I know you've just shown me your library. Uh, I, I'd count you as a book collector as well. You've got a, a wonderful collection of books, great war books mainly that, that I saw. Uh, would you, is that part of your collection, do you think? Or, or is it also a research, well, it's a research tool as well, uh, fitting in with the others? It's, it's most definitely both because, uh, the sort of books that you've seen are predominantly the regimental histories and divisional histories and those sort of books and, and official histories, which are most certainly not the sort of book. It's not a Peter Hart um, at close range Bonk type book <laughs> where you sit down and you start at the beginning and you read the book. These are books. Oh, I meant blockbuster. <laughs> these are books that you dip into to get the research information. I stayed at the Ariane Hotel about seven or eight years ago. They let you uh, in? They did let me in. They didn't let me out again. Um, <laughs> Not and there, was, there was a bill. huge display by the stairs, I seem to recall. Might be in the lift. Uh, of Great War 
uniforms, artefacts, etc. Was that something to do with you, I seem to recall? <laughs> Might be. So, Natasha, who's, who runs the Ariane, is a good friend. I was actually staying in the hotel on the battlefield the very first night she, she took over, about 25 years ago. Um, so, you know, in a very long time. And a few years ago, she said, doing some extensions to the hotel, what I'd like to put into it is a little sort of mini museum. Can you help? Well, of course you help your friends out. Um, so there was the opportunity to take some of this stuff that otherwise would be sitting in a box in an attic and get it out to where people could actually see it. Because that's one of the the, the, the important things in, in my view in collecting. It's not the important it's not view just, in a lot of collectors' view. It, precisely, that they hoard it and they've got to have it in the... It, it's stashed away, it's my precious. And this stuff here is is actually out there where... I don't know how many people a year go through the area in normal times. Seven. Yeah. Oh, no, that's COVID times. <laughs> well, exactly. But uh, people see the stuff. It was certainly very prominent. And when you when you go there and you just stand back near reception and watch, there's always someone stopping to look at it. And that makes it worthwhile because you're sharing information. You're sharing knowledge. And you, you're helping, I suppose, uh, to present a, a, a memory of the people that, that fought there 100 or so years ago. Now, uh, I, I think that's a great uh, way to move on to the next bit, which is to uh, to think about some items in your collection. Uh, I don't know what we... Uh, let's start with... Uh, well, you tell us what you want to start with. How about a picture of the Queen? Yeah. Oh, well, uh, which Queen? Oh, I can mean, see which more, Queen there's been, there's been She more looks than younger one. and more beautiful than I remember. No, sorry, this is uh, Victoria, isn't it? So we're definitely talking to Queen Victoria, and we all have this image of Queen Victoria. Old lady, rather portly, bit sort of Gary-shaped, wearing black. And that's our, our, our view of Queen Victoria. But this is a lithograph print of Queen Victoria, aged probably only about 19 or 20. don't know what you think on that. It's, But she's certainly young. And the, the, the print is signed. And, uh, 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 signed, signed by? By the Queen. Now that in itself is amazingly rare, surely. Yeah, which which implies that there must be something more than it's just a print of the Queen. And the more astute amongst the two of you might notice that it's glazed on both sides because there's a lot of writing on the back. And for, for many years, uh, there was a little... Sort of, it was actually a gun shop in Southsea. And the guy said to me, I've got this here, this here print. It's to do with the the Queen and a particular regiment, which I'll come to in a moment. And I went in the one day and said, I've decided to sell it. It's up on the wall. Oh, OK, better buy it then. And there's two things about the back of this. You can see where the very old frame has been. And then there's a lot of very faint, faded writing, mostly in the same hand, but the last three names are signatures. And it starts by saying, Officers, HM 32nd Regiment, Look now, Oud Province, 1st of July, 1857. So we all know about what happens on the 1st of July. Battle of the Somme Day. First Not in 1857. Oh, no, yeah. First day at Gettysburg. 
not in... <laughs> 1857. It's a lucky day, really, isn't it? It's a strange day to have start a battle. So, so, uh, so, so this is. So, what do what do you reckon it is then? Um, ah, right. So these names are the officers of the 32nd Regiment of Foot. Fine body of men, Gary. I knew you were going to say that, Peter. Who were the, the core of the defence of the residency at Lucknow during the Indian Mutiny? Uh, well, that they, ran from. I think May 1857 through to November 1857. Yeah, effectively. Now, they they got involved in it when their regimental depot um, came under attack from the mutineers at a place called Cornpore. And quite a few of the, the, the men and the families were killed in a short siege. And then they were given notionally safe passage down the river on boats and the mutineers chased after them. And they were basically killed and uh, thrown down the well. Oh, it's the fam- it's what was then popularly known as the Cornpool Massacre. It, it, exactly. So part of the regiment went in that, but the rest of the regiment were at Lucknow, and they they holed up into the residency. They didn't have enough manpower to 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 secure the fort and the residency, so the, the residency was chosen. They defended that. Um, against a tremendous onslaught from, from the mutineers over many weeks with increasing casualties. The uh, the man in charge of the defence, Sir Henry Lawrence, uh, was killed on the, the fourth day of the, the siege. There was mine warfare from the mutineers who kept trying to undermine um, the defences. And they were initially received, relieved by Sir Henry Havelock on the 25th of September with a small relief force who promptly got bottled in as well. So these guys then, they continue defending the residency until it was about the 22nd of November when they were finally um, relieved. So what's the picture? Well, it's got all of the names of the officers present during the siege that are in the, 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 the contemporary list, plus one. And this is, the, the extra name is the adjutant, who was definitely there. So that gives very strong evidence that it's a contemporary piece. And it's almost certainly either the officer's mess picture of the Queen from the 32nd or the residency picture of the Queen. Now there's extra provenance. There's a piece of parchment in the back saying he was found in Truro Market in 1896 by a gentleman called Corporal F.J. Clemo, 2nd DCLI. Fred Clemo an interesting character in his own right. He won the Distinguished Conduct Medal in the Boer War, Battle, uh, Battle of Paderberg, which was second DCLI's major action. He was a colour sergeant by then. By 1913 he was RSM, 2nd Battalion, out in Hong Kong with the battalion, who incidentally became Marines on HMS Triumph um, when that ship was reactivated on the outbreak of war. Uh, and then they came back and 2nd DCLI formed a part of one of the truly forgotten divisions that no one knows about, the 27th Division, which was Regulars. And he fought with them through uh, battles at St. Eloy, south of Ypres, 2nd Ypres, um, right the way through to November 1915, when he was effectively discharged to, com- to commission. He was an old soldier by this time. And he became Lieutenant and Quartermaster with the 1st, 7th uh, Worcestershire's. But then things go very murky. 
because his medal index card says that he was um, discharged by general court-martial in mid-1918, was that August 1918, and I can't find either his papers or anything relating to the court-martial. Now he got his, so he lost his medals, but he got his medals back in 1928, and he he went on into the uh, and survived until after the Second That's World War. That's as interesting as the as the, uh, yeah, the original so, picture. So there's a there's that second backstory with with one item, and it's an ongoing mystery because you can't find his papers. There's wow. nothing in the war diaries for the the Worcesters, but this guy, an old soldier, DCM, been on RSM. Uh, was he a dodgy quartermaster? <laughs> did he get? Did he get drunk? Is there any other type? Do we know? Do we ever know any problems with quartermasters? Is there I'm anyone out saying. there? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story, and uh, there's lots of resonances now because uh, I presume when uh, when they uh, when they when uh, when uh, Lucknow was re- relieved that uh, the relieving forces treated the remaining mutineers with respect and, uh, oh, and absolutely um, well, as one does they massacred them. Yeah, which uh, which is uh, you know it's an interesting topic and the, and the whole of the Indian mutiny I think we we will return to uh, in a, in a, one of the podcasts uh, but we'd better move on right well that's a great start Andy but uh, so so what have you got second for us I can see you clutching something to your your bosom and it's not a shiny badge it's not a shiny badge in fact it looks like a grotty book yeah it's SS six one five SS oh. That sounds like a cookbook. No, it doesn't. I'd have thought it sounded like a, a tactical how to employ no, a machine gun. it sounds like what you call Well, a the SS series of books, booklets, covered a huge range of things. And, um, yeah, I seem to remember that one, though, because that was my favourite when I was Stationary service, Andy? Something like that, yeah. I think it's stationary service. But it's, it's a document issued by the Quartermaster General's Branch, which should imply something that, yes, of course it's a cookbook. I because I bet my this is a man it. who knows his food. Yeah, I bet my way through that. The okay. fish cakes are particularly lovely. And it's a lovely little book, which in essence is it's a recipe book. Because it, when you actually delve into how you fight a battle, one of the most important things you do is you feed the guys first. And, and you keep them fed. And... We've got to remember that at the time of the Great War, there wasn't an armory catering corps, although the, the catering was done at battalion level. So there had to be guidance that came down from above and those that, those that were knowledgeable. It, uh, it's, how many people would that be for, Andy? How many people could you feed based on those recipes? There's two, there's, there's two, two groups of recipes here, 50 men or 100 men. So it's not insignificant quantities. So like uh, 25 or 50 Garys? Something like that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, But what you've got to remember here... Are you saying I'm twice the man I used to be? Yes. Yes. Yes, okay. Uh, Moving on. Sorry. what What you've got to remember here is that this was taken very seriously. If you look at a lot of the war diaries at divisional level, the boring adjutant quartermaster branch war diaries... Some of those diaries have got so much information in there because they they publish all of the, the they record all the, the the weekly orders. And one thing they were really hot on was the hygiene in the kitchen in the kitchens. There wasn't any of this here. You're allowed to smoke or anything like that when you're cooking the food. 
they were really hot on it. And most people don't get that. Is you you you, you see a lot of parodies where the fag ash is falling into the soup. No, that wasn't allowed. Um, so this book, it's got recipes for soups, and it's got things like cooking chestnuts. Uh, there's a range of puddings. Now, maybe we shouldn't talk about puddings until we talked about mains. There's a nice recipe there for fish cakes. Yeah, let's hear this recipe. So, you're a clever fellow. Let's see if we can find it again. It's... Um, is this for in the field, Andy, or is this for... Yeah, it's cooking in the field. Um, and there's diagrams there of how you build the, the, build the ovens and stuff like that. So, fish cakes for 100 men. Have a guess at what the main ingredient is, please. Fish! Potato. Okay. So, yes, in part of it is 10 tins of herrings. There's also four pounds of potatoes. And there's some pepper. And there's some breadcrumbs. Give it a bit of bulk. You would know all about that, Gary. Uh, And a little stock. But what's the main ingredient? It's none of those. First one on the list is 10 tins of bully beef. <laughs> I love the army. Okay. So the main, the main ingredient in your fish cake is bully beef. Excellent. Gives you that meaty flavour. I suppose it's not plum jam. So it's a good job you weren't a vegetarian in 1970. Now, you've got to have your three-course meal, so there's recipes for soup. But there's also things here. It's called biscuit for 100 men. And this is a series of recipes. Dumplings. Biscuit pastry. Scones. 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 Oh, no, you're not going to have that argument. <laughs> Which side of the fence did we see you swing? Scone. Okay. I can't believe it. We've never agreed on the pronunciation. Okay. Rock cakes. Rock. Rock. And Cake. Dundee pudding. So the, the catering was actually taken very seriously. It wasn't just the monotonous diet. And there's actually in here one page, which is a sample menu for a whole week as to what they get for all of their meals. And it's quite a balanced diet because... In a perfect world. In a perfect world. But in reality, things weren't too bad. There's a very nice story. It was um, written written by a guy called um, uh, Ben Keeling. Uh, Keeling is an interesting character in his own right. He he was a mate of uh, Keir Hardy. Labour Party fame. I'll remember him. Okay, yeah, you probably do, Pete. You're I am that, old. You are old. H.G. Uh, Wells, um, Winston Churchill, and he actually joined up with Rupert Brooke. But that's a different story. <laughs> but th- this guy, Keeling, he wrote for the New Statesman. And he wrote a story which was published, I think, in early 1916, called The Bully Beef Mine. And it was a bit of a parody about quartermasters again. And how the army dealt with with surplus. Because the principle was that if you had 800 men on ration strength, you got 800 rations. If you got 1,000 men, you got 1,000 rations. But there was no concept with the quartermaster that if there was surplus of something, there was no way of not taking that. So they ended up with surpluses of things like biscuits, which they came up with all sorts of ideas for in this parody, like uh, dainty meals for mules. And they found they could burn, they would burn nicely, so biscuit fires had a particular bluish tinge. But the bully beef, they had ideas where these were turned into rissoles, 
And then there was so much bully beef that they ended up burying it. And the parody comes in at the end that in times of shortage, you would see men hunting the, sea, the sites of former camps with pick and shovel looking for deposits of bully beef left behind. It's, writ- it's written up in the New Statesman. It's, it's, it's quite a, it's quite well, a nice everything story. Everything in the New Statesman as a left-wing magazine is, of course, true. Absolutely. <sighs> you also had to contend with those special mice. Was it Hanoverian mice that could uh, <laughs> eat through the rations? <laughs> That's what I remember about now. <laughs> Right. Uh, well, uh, let's go. Let's get down. The, the next thing is something that's uh, really conventional in the sense of a collector, and that's uh, this is a uh, r- material related to uh, Lieutenant Ru- well Rupert Moon. Uh, or uh, now, now uh, he's a VC, a Victoria Cross. Now you haven't got the VC because you're not a millionaire, and your collection is interesting rather than super valuable. Uh, yeah, but. Um, uh, tell us a, a bit about it, because it, there's a photograph there. I can see it. Uh, yeah, it's handsome a, young lad. It's an interesting photograph. It's, there's a sort of ribbony thing underneath the, it. Yeah, you leave that for a minute. We'll come back to that bit. This photograph, you mentioned the Belgian connection just now. You've got a lot of friends in Belgium, and one of my Belgian friends, he said, it's called "Frankie, he's got this photograph. I told him he ought to sell it to you." He found it in a flea market in Brussels. Lo and behold. It's a picture of an Australian officer with his signature on it. And the signature is Rupert Moon. It's very legible. It's very legible. And um, 1917? 1917. And in the photo, he's wearing the ribbon of the VC and the the ribbon of the 15 star. And, of course, the prize is that in the frame with it are the two original ribbons with the little bronze VC emblem on the VC ribbon. And it's clearly what he actually wore on his uniform. Now, it's the closest I'm going to come to owning a VC. The original is in public hands. It's in the Australian War Memorial at Canberra. So the Aussies have, have got the originals. And, and that's probably where it should be. And it's, it's, it's where it should a, be. I have a personal opinion, which, uh, which, uh, which uh, Gary uh, would, would uh, probably disagree with, that everybody who owns a VC is a complete wanker that's not a public institution, but uh, unless it's a member of the family. It's harsh words, but... Uh, but fair. Well, it, it, it'd it'd be nice Ashcroft, to see really families <laughs> still own some of the VCs. I, I would prefer that. But they, they're worth so much money. People like Ashcroft will pay tens, twenties, hundreds of thousands of pounds for them. Yeah, and if you, you're a normal family... You, you're probably you could, talking quarter of a million on a Great War VC, easy. Yeah. You can't turn aside a quarter of a million pounds if you're living in a, a, a backstreet house in Salford. Exactly. Um, what, his VC gets, was awarded for an action on the 12th of May 1917, wasn't it, yeah. near Bullecourt? It was, it was Bullecourt. He was 58th Battalion Australian Imperial Force. Um, he was involved in the fighting between... OG one and OG two, the old German line one and OG and old German line two, and he no imagination en- these Germans, <laughs> and he ended up leading a small patrol trying to to capture a a blockhouse. Uh, he got wounded four times, including in the face. Apparently, he was wounded in the jaw, and it, he he clearly recovered quickly. Um, although the write the, the write ups of the VC talk about him being severely wounded. Um, Rupert Moon, he was allegedly severely wounded, but he was back with his battalion from hospital within about three to four weeks. Now, I said to Pete on the way here, you know, lots of people get <laughs> get wounded in action. You know, what what's he done to, to 
a winner VC. And he pointed out to me that it was not just wounded once, it was four it times. It was four times. And he continued to lead his men. Was that what it was for then? Uh, basically leadership in extremis, sort of thing. I, be- I believe so. I'm not, I've not seen anything that suggests otherwise. I, I couldn't I'm, find anything else about it, really. I, I've not seen anything that suggests it was a politically motivated to, to beef up the numbers of VCs to, to empire troops or anything like that. There's no, there's no evidence at all. And he survived the war? He survived the war. He was back in Brussels by 1919. He, he, had ret- he went home to Australia after being wounded. He came back to the Western Front and apparently he was in, in Brussels in 1919. And one assumes that the photograph was given to a, a lady friend or whatever. Or whatever. No, he, like whatever. He, he did, in fact, enjoy a long life, didn't he? He was, I believe he worked in banking after the I war. I think he was a banker. Yeah. And, That's a uh, banker, Peter. Yeah, he, he was a banker, Peter. All right, a banker. A what? merchant banker. Yeah, he was a merchant banker. Hmm. I was stunned to see when he died, uh, just how late it was. He was the last surviving one, I think, from the great. Uh, no, but he, he died in 1986, didn't he? Uh, which is quite recently to me. Yeah, that is quite recent. You know, it's. Uh, but he's a young fellow, though, in 1917. Yeah, uh, 28th of February 1986, last but one surviving. Uh, yeah, so and the other one died about six weeks later. William Joint, yeah. Now, uh, what's next, sir? What, 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 I think we're going to move on to the uh, the uh, Webbing Haversack. <clears throat> yeah, so... Which I've got here. So, yeah, in 19... Pretty, pretty the, ordinary looking thing. It's a very ordinary looking thing. In 1908, as a result of lessons learned in the, the South African War, the a Webbing set of equipment was introduced, which... Yeah, it became the standard and was pretty good because he we Taft put on like Gillingham a jacket. Speaks brilliantly about it, about how practical it was. Yeah, and it and it even goes around him. <laughs> Not now. Not now. Okay. And do you think oh, it would go around? Have you decided Gary? to leave me alone? Then? Oh, I've just come back to you. <laughs> it's, it, it is quite ordinary, but why why would that catch the eye of a collector, Andy? Well, it probably wouldn't because someone's messed around with it and the back of it's painted pink. Right. Did you do that? Well, I know why it's painted pink. Did Carol do it? No. Have I coloured it in absentmindedly? No, just south of the River Thames, there's this lovely little museum-y type thing. Okay, and they've got some really good archives. And one thing as a collector you've got to do is target the archives to gain the knowledge that informs what you should buy and when. That's uh, the War Museum. That's the War Museum, A wonderful Pete. institution. Uh, 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 allegedly, you had been seen there on occasion. Well, I was the interviewer. It was my job to be elsewhere. Ah, uh, right. Never mind. Anyway, um, in the War Museum, there's a set of archives, which, with great foresight, a series of questionnaires was sent out to the units in 1917, saying, what insignia did you wear? And most of the units responded certainly most of the infantry battalions. And what it shows is there was some very good tactical thinking and lots of good planning, despite this here great mythology of lions led by donkeys and all that bollocks. So part of this here planning was you need to know how to recognise your troops. And let's, let's, let's bust a myth straight away. All the soldiers were told to advance were carrying their packs. Rubbish. They tended to carry on their back 
their haversack, because that carried things like the unconsumed portion of the day's ration and stuff like that. So they wore these these, these small packs or haversacks on their back. And the ideal place to put some sort of recognition mark, if you're trying to see how far your troops are gone, is right in the middle of their back. So the 7th Division, who were in the sector south of Mametz, their scheme was the different, the two assaulting brigades. One had yellow cloth or yellow paint on the back of the haversack, and the 20th Brigade, their battalions, their haversacks were painted pink, or they had a big rectangular pink cloth tacked onto them. So this here is actually a relic of the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Uh, and it's something that most people would ignore simply because, oh, somebody's been at it with the paint. Well, that's what we... we well, I thought it was Gary. Well, no, I, I mean, you, you you hear of the uh, the metallic triangle, don't you? 29th oh, the Twinklers. Division. 29th yeah. Division, yeah. Um, exactly the same. But you wouldn't think something as simple as just painting the haversack pink it's, would, it's would a big, be thought of. It's a big swatch of colour right in the middle of the back of the guy and you get a reasonable idea of how far they've got. And of course, now these guys, the 20th Brigade, included the 8th and 9th Devons. Oh, we've been to their graveyard. Okay, some Mansell Cops. They attacked out of Mansell Cops, down a course to where the machine gun was on the corner of the cemetery opposite. They were ambushed. Captain Martin, who, who had made the prediction with his plasticine models of what was actually going to happen. So that piece of kit... And the Reverend Cross buried them. Yeah. He was cross, wasn't it? He was cross after he'd done that. Yeah. So you can actually tie this artefact to a particular day in history. That's wonderful. That really is wonderful. That's fascinating. We'll put pictures of these things up so people can share our uh, our, uh, our our amusement in it all. Now, uh, uh, let's see what's... Oh, the next one. Uh, yes, uh, Gary's put it on his head. Uh, well, Gary... You look, ex- it may be a bit too small for you. It was uh, very small, actually. And uh, this is a German pickle howl. It is. Now, who did that belong to? And, and how have you got it in your possession? Actually? Ah, now this is one that turned up at one of the military affairs, I don't know, 20 years ago. When you look at the pictures, you'll see it's actually, it looks as if it's been there. It's because it has. It's got its original cover with the green numerals on the front. Reserve Regiment 242. And inside, it's named to a Soldat Weiger. Okay, that's important. Um, because Weiger, as far as I can determine, is in the mass grave at Langemark. And his date of death is the 21st of October, 1914. And his regiment, Reserve Regiment 242, was part of the, the first wave of German reserve formations that were put together at the very beginning of the war, including the, the young university volunteers. Oh, the myth of the... Uh, the, the Kinder well, the Morgan. Well, the myth's myth November. So this is part... This was a two-day battle, I think, wasn't it? Uh, this battle was no, actually no. a little bit longer. The, the, these guys... First yeah. First, first Epa, the 242 was the first German regiment to come in contact with the British at a place called Kreisacker Crossroads. It's out to the east of Gallivelt. That regiment took, I think it was six days, to do the half a mile up to to Gallivelt. And they took about 60% casualties, including him. 
So this could have been a souvenir. What's your problem? Almost, almost certainly souvenirs. Uh, brought back by someone in, uh, it would have been seventh division who were uh, on point at that at that area. Uh, it was seventh, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and um, it, it's an example of something from literally the first day of the first Battle of Ypres. So that one has actually spent quite a bit of time. Uh, on display in the Ariane as part of that display you you mentioned, Gary. It also spent a little bit of time. Uh, I I had it on loan for uh, a while into in Flanders Fields Museum in Ypres, and they were running a an exhibition with uh, stuff from collectors. So it's it's definitely a half and half. The the Germans were were still learning their tactics at the time. These were reservists that had done. Uh, some of the basic, the, some of the basic training. So the, the 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 German regular regiments went out the front door of the depots, and the reservists came in the back door, kitted out, and they were sent off to war as well. Because we're only talking here of October, so we're not very far in. So the the ability to learn has been absolutely minimal. I think uh, one one thing uh, that I would advise if people want to know more about the German army at first Eps is to read Jack Sheldon's book. Uh, which has lots of great quotes in, although not obviously one from uh, Soldad Riga. Uh, but we've recommended uh, Jack's work before. It's difficult for the English to read because it's different names, different units, different everything. Uh, and that makes it seem a difficult read. Uh, and, but it and, is f- absolutely fascinating stuff. And the quotes are brilliant. And Jack's work is uh, fantastic. And the, the Germans had a slightly different organisation. A German regiment was like a British brigade. Yes. Whereas a a British regiment is very much a family of battalions that could be anywhere. Well, people say that, you know, because it, it, it doesn't read as fluently because we it's all new to us, that's why. Oh, it, it, but exactly. the, the stuff, the work is brilliant. It's but brilliant. As, as a collector or a historian, sometimes you've got to look at both sides of the picture if you're going to try to understand anything. And I would say if people visit the uh, the Eps area, there's a number of uh, German cemeteries, obviously. You've got Vladslow, not far but uh, Langemark is, is certainly something you should visit. It's got a very different atmosphere to it to uh, some of the British and Commonwealth ones. It is. It's more uh, gloomy. That may be the trees. It is trees. Yeah, you, you, you could be right. I turned up there once on Armistice Day on my own and about two o'clock in the afternoon it was still, the ground was still covered with sort of freezing mist and you look, looked in through the portal and those figures were still at the on the back back wall before they'd been moved. And I thought, nope, not going in there today. Now, um, so the the next thing, very briefly, uh, this this is quite a dramatic thing. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a Lancy thing. It's a it, Lancy thing, yeah. yeah but it's uh, to the third hussars. That, uh, that piqued my interest. Yeah, so tell me what the problem is with the Lance to the third hussars. Uh, swordy things, rifle-y things. Hussars in the they British Army. They don't have lances. Hussars didn't carry Sorry. lances. It's hot. <laughs> they don't carry lances. And it, it, instead of the little red and white pennon on there, which you normally see on lances, this thing has got a it's, it's got a faded blue flag on it, with a white horse, and the words Third King's Hussars. And you think, okay, it's got to be a story here, and the story is actually quite simple. It's the Colonel's flag. Okay, and you can put the flag on something. You can put it on a lance because those things are available. And how do we know it's the the colonel's flag? There's a little bone tag with it, engraved tag, 
and he came from a country house down in Kent. Um, unfortunately, time had taken its toll on it, so it's not perfect condition. But the bone tag says, the Colonel flag, carried in the advance to victory in 1980. So again, it's, it's an object that's a one-off that you can actually tie back to a, a period in time, and you can set up that vision in your mind of this column of cavalry in late summer of 1918, moving forward, Colonel at the front, his orderly behind him with the flag. Fantastic. And uh, and if you want to read more about it, uh, I notice you have a copy of the... Well, you can't read Andy's, but there's a the history of the Third Hussars. King, third King's own, own Fine Hussars. Fine body of men. And these were a bunch of guys that had been on the Western Front from the earliest days of the war, 1914. They were involved in the Ypres sector around Fletra, um, uh, the, uh, around the Casal area. So, yeah, these guys had had a long history on the Western Front. Most of it, albeit, as mounted infantry and reserves ready to move forward as infantry with mobility. The only fast-moving force at Haig's disposal, because tanks aren't fast-moving, are they? So if you read the accounts of um, the 8th of August, 1918, um, one hour after the infantry started, three cavalry divisions passed, started moving forward and passed through the infantry, passed the tanks and went on the rampage, Behind German lines. I always like that when it, whenever the Australians are, are saying they've got that big railway gun thing outside uh, the Canberra Museum, uh, that was captured by the cavalry, British cavalry, and then the Australians came and stole it. That, uh, which is so much uh, British ne- negligence. Um, yeah, there, there, there is a nice little. Oh. There's a nice little side story there. I think it was um, one of the cavalry units. I think it might have been um, in Scotland Dragoons came into a German railway marshalling yard um, at pretty much a full gallop, just as the German troop train was trying to unload. And the results were not, not good for the Germans. Well, they, they are you. They are a part of the uh, the, the paint set that you paint the picture and, and of war with. People, they, they for, people forget. in their place. People forget that on those particular occasions, they were invaluable because they had mobility. And they had greater mobility than other arms. And they were trained to do everything that a soldier could do. And then they could use the arm blanche as well, the uh, the sword, if necessary, but very rarely. Think of them as not... I mean, Haig would never allow you to call them mounted infantry, but because c- he hated mounted infantry. But in e- effect, that's what they are. Well, you but, describe them as, as all-round soldiers. All-round. mounted infantry thought were fairly limited. Well, it's because they couldn't ride and they couldn't yeah. shoot. And so. they didn't look after the horses. So that, that is a really interesting... Now, the, the last thing we're going to talk to you about is three separate things. To, and we've got a photograph of them as well. Which we'll, we'll have put photographs of all these things up. And that's three rifles. Now, uh, let's go to the, from, from left to right in the picture. So what's on okay. the left? So on the left... It's longer than the other ones. That's because, it, noticed, that's because it's known as a long Lee. It's a long Lee Enfield. It dates from about 1900. And effectively... It's the, the the action of Mr. Enfield. Sorry, it's the action of Mr. Lee with the rifling of Mr. Enfield. The predecessor had been the Lee Metfield. So this was the new weapon that was coming in towards the end of the, the Boer War. So by the 1907, new weapons were coming in. So this became partially obsolete. Uh, it was converted for loading with, loading with charger clips in about 1910. 
all stamped up on it. That's the five round clips. Five round clips that you everyone would recognise. Yeah. Uh, two two clips in. Two Could clips you still worth. Still get yep. two in. Uh, it's it's ten, ten round magazine, so it's uh, a long magazine. The Enfield. So, okay, and the interesting thing about this one is, on the outbreak of war, this semi-obsolescent rifle was issued to a a lot of units. Uh, the um, the Royal Naval Division carried them. Lots of battalions in training in the UK had these things. But this one's a little bit different because on the, the, the butt plate, the unit markings are stamped. And they're stamped 9ES, 9th East Series. So firstly, what do we know about the 9th East Series? Journey's End. It's the Journey's End Battalion. No. Is it the one, what's his name, the football ball was in as well? Or was that the 8th? No, that was the eighth. That's it, You're thinking yeah. of um, yeah, Billy Neville. Yeah. So there was a book written about the uh, ninth, uh, the Journey's End Battalion because I've got it. I haven't read it. Um, but the other thing to note is the ninth East Surreys were part of the twenty fourth Division, who were rushed over to the Western Front relatively prematurely in early September nineteen fifteen, and they went in on the second day at the Battle of Lewes. And at that time, they were still equipped with the Long Lee rifle rather than the, the SMLE. So this rifle was al- almost certainly used in action on the Battle of Luz. That's quite something. Gary, what do you want to ask about the second one? Well, the second one uh, is the short magazine, the Enfield. And it's the one in the middle on the picture. Now, this is a Mark One, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's the early version from about 1907. Very quickly bypassed in the evolution of the SMLE because the, the main one that everyone went to war with in 1914 was the number one Mark III, which had its magazine cut off and volley sights and all of that stuff. But this intermediate one, a few territorial units had purchased these, including the London Scottish the London Jocks. And the London Scottish carried the number one Mark Ones into action in their first action, which was the 31st of October 1914, on the Messines Ridge. That's quite a, uh, an important action. It's a, it's a very important action, both for the, the London Scottish and, I suppose, the territorial force in, in, in general. And generally, the problem with the... Um, the, the number one Mark One was it was designed to chamber a style of 303 ammunition that had a round nosed bullet. The normal SMLE fired a pointy bullet. So that what ha- happened was that these rifles, when they tried to use the modern ammunition in these older rifles, they wouldn't feed properly and they became single loaders rather than magazine loaders. So the, the firepower was greatly diminished, and most of these rifles were thrown away as quickly as they decently could. And most of the, the lads from the London Scottish picked up rifles from the, the, the cavalry who were fighting alongside them, casualties in the cavalry, and they, they fought with normal SMLEs. Now, this particular rifle, um, I believe we can trace this one back a little bit. It came to me a few years ago. It had previously been in Oxfordshire, as it had previously been in Ypres. And it had been in the collection of a, a good friend in Ypres who 
died about 12, 13 years ago. Um, great gun collector. And this weapon had been picked up by his father on the Messines Ridge in 1919. And if you look closely at the rifle, it's pitted and a little bit rusted, as if it had been out on the, the fields for four years, five years. And this is almost certainly a rifle from that day, 31st of October 14, and it spent World War II um, hidden behind a furnace in the family home, even though there were Germans billeted in the house. Because uh, this guy, his name was Tony de Bruyne. He was well known in Ypres. It only came out really after he, he died. That most people knew he'd been sort of involved as a as a teenager, as a, a runner for the resistance. He'd actually been quite intimately involved in the Belgian resistance network. So there's another little interesting sideline. Wow, that is good detective work as well. Yeah. Now the third and the last thing for today that that looks more that even I think that looks more normal. It, uh, it's the one it, on the right. Tell it's me an, about that. It's an absolutely standard SMLE number one Mark Three star. It's the mid-war. They've simplified it as much as they can to improve production. And this one was found with this matching bayonet in an attic in Harwich. Now I've got it because it's. Um, is marked to the 3rd Battalion DCLI. Happened to be the, the Special Reserve Battalion. The bayonet's also marked to the same battalion. That's very unusual. So what was this rifle doing with its bayonet in an attic in Harwich? Almost certainly a deserter's weapon. With somebody got fed up with the war. I'm going to put my civvies on. Stick this here damn rifle out of the way. So that's really all we can say about that. Desert, deserter's weapon. Wow. Uh, now, uh, so that's it for Exxon. It, it's a wonderful collection. It, it, it's great. Um, what do you, one thing I tend to ask about questions, have you ever thought of wearing any of this kit, of perhaps uh, wandering around pretending to be a soldier or a, a reenactor or something? Or a Japanese admiral. Or a Japanese admiral, as I myself am a Japanese yes, admiral. Yes, there is most certainly a community that great, get great pleasure in living history and recreating the uh, the times correctly and there's some good friends who who have done that in the past and we've learned some practical things from them that's right and they are the the, the, the people that, that that do it properly and then there are another community that perhaps like taking things out of the dressing up box I don't think you need to say any more I don't, so not for you that um, so no I've never worn any of the stuff what, uh, what, uh, I used to work at the War Museum. Uh, what about when you fall off your perch? What, what do you want to happen to your, uh, I mean, hopefully not for two or three years yet. Uh, what, what do you, uh, you've only got six months, Gary. Uh, what, do you, what do you want to happen to your collection? Do you want to keep it together or do you want, to, do you want some lucky person to oh. sell it or do you want to or give it to a museum? What do you want to happen to it? Oh, it's, that's a difficult question, Pete, because some of the, some of the things they clearly ought to go into. Museum collections, um, probably not the uh, the war museum because the, the first world war stuff I've got is they sell it. They, they've got lots of it, but there are one two items from the the early Victorian period that probably ought to end up in the, the reserve collection of NAM because they are absolute one offs. There's no surviving examples other than the examples upstairs. 
that really should end up there. Um, the other thing, of course, is to try to document stuff. And one of the things that I have been doing over the last few years is photographing not only the stuff that that I've got, but some of the stuff in the, the IWM where people have really helped me out with they are access. wonderful. And putting that together into a coherent picture that tells much more of a story than is currently available in the reference uh, works. So, yeah, I've got various projects ongoing in the background, writing stuff up, documenting. Are we going doing... to see a book? Yeah, quite possibly. There's this one that's at least 95% complete. What oh, would it be about? Oh, well, um, I did think of, of doing another cookbook. But I don't think I've got quite the charisma of uh, Nigella to be able to take it to TV. Oh, well, we've heard all about your curry. I think uh, don't don't write it off. Well, there is a recipe for curry in here, and I would have quite happily made you a curry to that recipe, but I couldn't get the bully beef. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm waiting for the fish cakes. <laughs> On that note, thank you very much. We've enjoyed a chatter, haven't we? And it's we've been a pleasure, a Peter and Gary. <laughs> Cheers, Andy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?